This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Well, Christmas is upon us, as Jack has said, and, um, you know, just in times of the nativity, um, it's deeply embedded in our national consciousness, isn't it? Our Western European, our North American Christian consciousness, the nativity is right, right deeply embedded there. In fact, uh, any of you who've got children um, will know that up to any child in Key Stage 1, in, in Britain anyway, will have the opportunity to participate in a nativity. Am I right? Yeah, all my three kids have done it. I won't show you pictures of them because they're, they're reached an age now where that would be too embarrassing. But we've had a star, we've had a sheep, we've had a shepherd, uh, a grumpy innkeeper, all of those different roles that uh, there isn't a key stage one child that will not have lines in the nativity. And uh, if you have yet to experience that, then you are really in for just the, the, just the most adorable treat to see your little ones doing that if you have them. Um, but, uh, you know, nativity, of course, means, uh, it comes from the word natal, which means birth. It's all about the birth of, as Claire said at the start of the service, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. God as a baby. God as a carpenter. God as a rabbi. Uh, all happening within the Jewish context. And this is, this is fundamentally embedded in our consciousness, isn't it? It's at the heart of Christmas and all of our imagery that we associate with Christmas, apart from Santa Claus, is around the idea of the baby being born in the crib and being born in the stable in a place called Bethlehem. So embedded within our understanding. And yet for me, I don't know about you, but actually the idea... The familiar idea of God becoming a human being sometimes can be so familiar that we escape the, the incredible nature of what it might look like. Is anyone else kind of so familiar with the nativity story that you can actually find yourself kind of really not grasping what the story is about until you tell someone about it who doesn't know anything about it. And I'm sure Jack's met people and the team have met people uh, this last term, you know, whilst uh, meeting at Cafe Soho, kind of actually, I've never heard of Christmas. I've never heard of the nativity. They've heard of Christmas, but they've never heard of the nativity. And if, if you were to explain to them, well, it, it's where God becomes a human being, they go, what? God becomes a human being. I kind of have this image in my head of like a big funnel, you know, with all of God kind of funneling down into this one person. It's just a phenomenal idea. It's just a phenomenal thought, something that blows our minds, something that has transformed our whole culture around the world, this idea of God becoming the flesh, God becoming a human being. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was wondering if I could actually have met Jesus, like as the baby Jesus, be one of the shepherds at the nativity, or be uh, one of you know those people around Jesus when he was preaching as a rabbi. Maybe I would have understood it a bit better. What about you? Have you ever thought to yourself, actually, I'd find it quite helpful to actually meet Jesus in person, physically meet him? Like, hello, friends, here's Jesus. Okay, you'd like to kind of would you would you like that? It might help you a little bit with your faith. And I was thinking it might help me with my faith. But then actually, when I was reflecting on what I know of the, the accounts of Jesus' followers in the accounts of his life, actually, I was wondering actually whether it would have helped or whether it would help me because I'm not sure it really helped them. If we look at the accounts of Jesus' life, we can see that many times his disciples didn't behave like Jesus was God in person, like when they're in the middle of a storm on a boat on the Lake Galilee, you know, and they're going to die and they're waking him up screaming, Jesus, wake up, we're going to die. I'm not sure they really thought of Jesus, the person in the boat, as God. Uh, I'm not sure that um, uh, Jesus' family 
really understood that he was God. At one point, you can read this in, uh, what is it, Mark 4, um, sorry, Mark 3, where actually um, his family come to take Jesus away from the public situation he's in because he's working nonstop, he's not eating, he's not drinking, and they're worried for his health, so they come to take him home. I don't think they fully got that Jesus was God. And, 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 and just another example, I'm not sure, Peter, in Matthew 20, is it Matthew 26? Yeah, Matthew 26, Peter, um, one of the chief sort of disciples, the lead disciples, he, 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 well, he denied knowing Jesus three times when Jesus was arrested. Again, I'm not sure that Peter really got that Jesus was God. It appears to me, actually, as we read the Bible, that actually they only really understood that he was God in person after the resurrection and the ascension. That's when they really got it. And we know this, that, like there's a really good example of it in, in Acts, which is one of the accounts, uh, sorry, one of the accounts of uh, the, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Acts 2.36 it says, so all the people of Israel should know this truly. God has made Jesus the man you nailed to the cross, both Lord and Christ. This is Peter talking, all right, the, the chief disciple. He says, the one that you nailed to the cross God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. In other words, by that stage, Peter realized that this funnel effect of all of God being funneled into one person was the reality that he'd experienced those previous years. So, what are we going to do? Because none of us have seen Jesus post-resurrection, post-ascension in the flesh, right? None of us have, and at least I'm assuming that's the case. Um, so what are we going to do about it? How do we experience Jesus? How do we encounter Jesus? Now, some of you will be going, well, I know how I encounter Jesus. I've experienced him in myself. And therein lies the clue to the, uh, the, the answer to this question. How do we experience Jesus? We experience Jesus within ourselves, right? First and foremost. And so um, how, do we, how do we kind of get an example of this? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul never met Jesus in the flesh, or so it seems. Some scholars think he might have done. But Paul appears to not have met Jesus in the flesh, and yet he claims to have met Jesus, encountered Jesus. So where do we see that? That's what we're going to ask the question of this morning. How do we encounter Jesus? If we can't encounter him in the flesh, how do we encounter him? And you might remember, I'm just going to give you a few details on Paul. You might remember that Paul actually, um, at some point in his life, changed his name from Saul. Now, there are actually two versions of the same name, two forms of the same name. Saul is the Hebrew form. And, um, and Paul is the Latin form, a bit like we might say Peter in English and in French we might say Pierre. Yeah, so it's just different forms of the same name. So he's changed, at some point he changed his name and some of you all know that he changed his name actually at some point after a dramatic encounter on the road to Damascus. So a little bit of background about Saul, pre-Paul, you know, same person but Saul. Uh, Saul was a Pharisee and he was a religious seller, okay, he was a, a, a a zealous Jew, a Jew of all Jews. He was the most extremist form of Jew you could imagine. And he was intent on preventing Gentiles becoming Jews and uh, uh, you know, allow, allowing the kind of uh, intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. And also he was intent on destroying all heresies. And at that time, Jesus was a Jew. Um, the followers of Jesus were Jews. Jesus of Nazareth was seen as a heresy. 
the idea that Jesus was God, it was, it was seen as a heresy amongst most Jews. And Paul, Saul, believed that. So he didn't just kind of argue with these people. He, he literally went from home to home, seeking them out, dragging them out of their homes and putting them in prison. And, and at some point, we know, for instance, overseeing the death, uh, the murder of some of these people. Uh, think of Stephen. He oversaw the death of Stephen, who was uh, stoned to death. So what we see here is a man who is completely committed to his cause. He is um, absolutely... Um, ju just an extremist of his time. And something happens to him on the road to Damascus. Something that in the text is described as being struck down and blinded by a bright light. And this is what is recorded of this encounter that Paul has. Acts 9 verse 4. Out of this light, Paul, Saul, hears this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Saul asked? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the voice replied. Now, we don't know what else uh, Jesus said to Paul, to Saul. Forgive me, I'm slipping in and out of the two, but the same person. We don't know what else Jesus said to Saul on that day. But what we do know is it utterly transformed him. And it utterly transformed him from this Jewish extremist who was zealously persecuting any heresy that he could find. Um, and uh, turned him into someone who spent the rest of his life proclaiming that this Jesus was indeed the Christ, something he completely had disagreed with before. And also uh, that, that the Jews were not the only people for whom God had a relationship. He proclaimed that every human being, every human being can have a relationship with God. To say that Paul... Um, became obsessed with Christ Jesus is not too strong a statement. The rest of his life, he spends the rest of his life trying to demonstrate that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, was God. And, and actually, Saul, uh, Paul, is me, Paul, by this point he's changed his name to Paul, Paul very rarely refers to his interactions with Jesus. He, and that is Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. He's he's, he actually refers all the time to his interactions with Christ Jesus. That is Jesus who is God. Not that they're not the same person, but he comes to realise that this Jesus of Nazareth was God. Now, how did he do that? Because he didn't meet Jesus in the flesh. Well, describing his experiences... Um, to, uh, to the Galatians, Paul writes this most telling line. He does not say that God revealed his son to me, as you might expect. Instead, he says in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal, that's a posh way of saying, when I was born, <laughs> when I was born, God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. Have you ever read that before? Have you ever read that and noticed that it says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Not to me, in me. And I didn't feel the need to consult any other human being. Now, at this point, Paul is not friends with the followers of Jesus. He's been literally dragging them out of their homes and putting them in prison and murdering some of them. So they, they are in no way in relationship with him. So Paul has this 
dramatic personal inner encounter with Christ Jesus. And he says, God revealed Christ in me. And I didn't feel the need to talk to any other human being to get more information about it. Wow. Wow. So we are understanding from this that Paul understood so much of his relationship, so much of what he understood about his relationship with Jesus Christ was from his personal inner encounter with Christ Jesus. This idea that um, Christ Jesus is in us is a very old Jewish idea. So um, in Genesis, I think it's one twenty-six, it says this, then God... And let me add, we, as Christians, we would say God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christ is in that mix. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. I, I've, I could think of dozens of ways to try and describe this. Let us make man, humankind to look like us. Okay, yeah, look like us. Okay, you, you, if I introduce you to my kids, you will notice that they look a little bit like me and they look a little bit like Claire. Why? Because they share the same DNA as we do. And they've got this amazing fusion of our two DNA, which creates a unique personality that still looks a bit like Claire and still looks a bit like me. You know that, right? Those of you that know me you know, and you know my kids, they look a bit like me, right? They look a bit like Claire. So it could be that. But we could use the word DNA. We know what DNA is. Or, or, or we might do. We think we do. Is it dinucleotide acids? Is that what it is? DNA? Is that right? Someone help me. Everyone's going, I have no idea. <laughs> DNA, but it's the thing that uniquely passed from one generation to the next. It's what defines who we are, who we look like. So we could say here, and they didn't have words for it then, that we have Christ's DNA in us because we're made in God's image. It's a deep, deep theological principle of Judaism that we are made in God's image. And uh, I could talk more about why that is important, but I haven't got time. But we'll do that another time. I wonder, if it, is it possible that Paul is saying that human beings carry the image of Christ in them? Just look at the person next to you. And just gently, however beautiful or ugly you might think they look. Okay, they carry the image of God. That's this deep theological principle. You look like God. You carry the DNA of God, whatever that means. But you look like God. We are made in the image of God. We have Christ's DNA. I wonder if Paul is referring to that when he says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Some might call it the divine spark of life. You might call it, there's this Hebrew word, ruach, which means breath of God. Um, and if you just take a, a breath in with me, let's just do this. You just inspired air into your lungs. The breath of God. Like, we kind of get that, don't we? Because breath is vital to our life, right? If we can't breathe, we can't, can't live. This ruach of God is like God's breath in us. There's lots of images in the Old Testament like Jeremiah and the Valley of Dead Bones and then God breathing and, and clothing those bones with life and resurrecting people. There's this strong sense that the life of God, the breath of God, the spark of life, the power of life. Have you ever pondered your existence? Have you ever 
thought, if I stop breathing now, I'm going to die. If my heart starts pumping, I'm going to die. Now, we know scientifically, to some extent, how it works. But the reality is, friends, is that there is, an, a, there is a, a miraculous thing about life, isn't there? We can't deny it. There's something miraculous about our life. And Paul says, quoting the writers of Genesis, that we're made in God's image. We carry the ruach of God, the spark of life, the DNA of God. Is it possible that Paul is saying, God revealed that in me. I saw that the life force of God was in me. Like us, Paul never knew Jesus in the flesh. He only knew Christ Jesus from observing, observing and honoring the depth of his own inner conscience and experience. He trusted what he perceived that voice to be saying to him. He trusted that experience that he had of Jesus. And he says, God was pleased to reveal Christ in me this amazing sense of inner, if you like, confidence. And so whenever you and I have reason to question our inner experiences of Christ, just remember that Paul was entirely dependent on his own perception and his own conscience and his own inner experience of Christ Jesus because he didn't meet him in the flesh, just like us. And boy, did he have a transformation as a result of it. But, you know, we don't just have to have uh, uh, that statement in Galatians to rely on for this. Look at Romans 2, 14 and 15, which is another letter that Paul wrote. Paul wrote this. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law... Gentiles, by the way, was a way of talking about non-Jews, so basically everyone that's not a Jew. So, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. What you need to know here is, is, that, is that the Jews believe that it was, the, the, the law was given to them by grace. So the Jews will tell you, a good Jew will tell you that knows their stuff will say, no, we are, we are recipients of God's grace. But the way we externalize that is by living according to the law. The law are given by Moses. And what Paul says is, the Gentiles didn't have that law. Why? Because they're not part of the Jewish tradition. But that does not mean that God's law is not written on their hearts and in their consciences. It's a stunning statement that Paul makes. This is the second piece of evidence from Paul's letters that Paul is talking about this inner sense of Christ being in us. On the road to Damascus, Paul was stunned to realise that Christ was in him. Is it possible that he'd just never seen it or understood it before? was it an incredible awakening that Paul had when he encountered Christ Jesus. I think this makes sense of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. I'm just throwing these verses at you here. You can go and look at them afterwards at home. You can listen to this talk back on our podcast and on YouTube as well. But 2 Corinthians 13, sorry, I can't read without my glasses. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. Paul says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Paul was so convinced that Christ is in all people and not just the Jews that he makes this astonishing statement. And I would say astonishing. So please just kind of remove your filters for a moment and read this with fresh eyes. Colossians 3 verses 11. Here, Paul says, in the new reality, there is no Jew, no, sorry, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What is happening there? Is Paul saying that every human being carries, for one of a better word, the DNA of Christ Jesus? I'm not talking here about the DNA of a 30-year-old carpenter, Palestinian carpenter at that. I'm talking about the DNA of Christ Jesus. He's drawing again on this deep Jewish insight that we are made in the image of God, that we have the DNA of God within us. So when we look inside ourselves and when we ponder at the miraculous spark of life that keeps you from falling dead on the floor, when we look at that and we ponder that, and we ask ourselves, is that the spark of life? Is that spark of life? Is that life force in each of us? The divine life force that Paul calls Christ Jesus. All of this life force that holds 200 billion galaxies and holds space for those 200 billion galaxies in our known universe. All funneled into one man. Is that that same life force that we're talking about? Is that the same life force that Paul is talking about? And for that matter, can I ask you this question? Have you ever noticed in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus tells his disciples, and get this, you've probably read this and just gone, oh, well, I don't understand that, so I'll just put that in the bracket of I don't understand. Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the good news to all creation, not just human beings. Mark 16, 15, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What does that even mean? Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1.23. He says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, including humans, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. From Paul's letter there and, and, and from what Mark says, it seems to me that, that there's this idea that, that Paul realised perhaps on the road to Damascus and in his continuing revelation of Christ in him, that all of creation is saturated in God's DNA. That all, I mean again, for one of a better word, I'm sorry, in God's ruach, in God's presence, that there is no one, there's no part of this universe of 200 billion galaxies where God's, DNA where God's presence is not saturated. Saturated. There's not one of the eight billion people that currently live on the planet who are not saturated in God's DNA, in who God is. Paul realised this. Mark seems to realise this as he recalls Jesus saying that. Interestingly, so does John. And I've said this in the last few weeks, but this is a really like important a Bible quote, if you like, a scripture for us in this whole series about Christ. 
John 1, 1 to 3, and verse 14 as well. I'm not being selected there, it's just sorry, it just makes my point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Christ Jesus. In the beginning was Christ, and the Christ was with God, and Christ was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Christ became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Paul and John, and I would say for that matter Peter as well, all seem to say that the whole of the universe is saturated in God's presence, God's DNA. Christ Jesus is in all things. Without him, nothing that has been made, nothing that has been made, has been, sorry, without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's just an, it's an amazing insight. But it's one that Peter, Paul, and John make repeatedly. But friends, for some reason, we seem to miss it. Paul and John appear to be saying that the whole cosmos, including humanity, has never been separate from God. Nor can it be. Paul and John appear to be saying that you and I have never been separate from God nor can we be, except in our minds. That's a very profound thought, isn't it? Paul says in other parts, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. So how do we experience Christ Jesus firsthand? Well, I want to suggest that we can experience Christ Jesus the same way that the Apostle Paul did. That God reveals Christ Jesus in us. So look inside yourself, and I'm going to invite you to do this as we just contemplate this now for five minutes. Look inside yourself. Observe the life force, the ruach, the breath of God, the DNA, and see Christ Jesus in yourself. You are made in the image of God. Observe the fruit of Christ Jesus in you. The fruit of the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're, the, they're one. It's the idea of the Trinity. Galatians 5, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit are... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm going to invite you now to um, reflect within yourself. We're going to play a bit of quiet music in the background. And we're going to use um, some words to meditate on. And I'm going to just say a few things just to prompt you in your meditation. But I want you to just reflect on who you are. I want you to invite you to, if you're at home, if you're driving and you're listening to this, don't close your eyes. But if you're at home, sat down comfortably, if you're here in the room, just close your eyes and just, um, we're gonna play a little bit of quiet music in the background and I'm just gonna say a few words to invite you to turn your attention to. And uh, those words are these. I've never been separate from God, nor can I be except in my mind. I've never, never been separate from God, nor can I be, except in my mind. Bring this realization to your loving consciousness. You may not have always been aware of the divine life force that's in you, 
but it's there. separate from God, nor can I be, except in my mind. You may not have always recognized Christ in you. But God, by his Spirit, He's going to do that. Just observe your breathing. Observe your breathing. body exchanges oxygen and carbon dioxide and brings life to your body and your heart beats spontaneously in rhythm to pump the blood around your body to fire the synapses in your nervous system the life of God is in you have some of the appearance of God. You share the DNA of God. You have the Ruach of God in your body. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are revealing Christ in us.
are so precious. You are made in the image of God. You're beautiful. You have such value. You have infinite value. Just like God has infinite value. You are powerful, more powerful than you realize. You have the energy of God within you. You're more lovely than you give yourself credit for. Because you have the love of God in you. You have immense capacity to create and to construct and to design. Because you have the creative power of God within you. You are made in God's image. You are emotionally full of health. God has given you health. He's filled your life with love. His love. Unconditional love. God has made you with the ability to respond to be responsible, responsible for your own actions, responsible for contributing to the well-being of those around you, to the health of our communities, the health of our families, the health of our workplaces, the health of our planet. You are made in the image of God. You've never been separate from God, nor can you be, except in your own mind. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? That's not a performance orientated question. It's just a statement of fact. Christ Jesus is in each of us. We are made in the image of God. Let us respond to this. Let us respond to it constructively and positively. Let us embrace our identity in Christ. May the life and the love of God be your energy and your vision and your motivation every day this week. And may you know God revealing to you Christ in you every day this week.